0: Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Good morning. How are you? I'm glad to be at church with you this morning, and I'm excited about wrapping up a series called Got Questions. This is our third of three weeks in the Got Questions series. Thank you for submitting questions. Those of you who did, they've been excellent and ones that I've been really glad that we've been able to respond to. Do you remember two weeks ago, the questions were all in the category of beliefs, and Cameron, Pastor Cameron and I responded to those. And then last week, we took questions in the category of Christian living and politics, and each of the five preaching team members responded to one question each, which was really fun. I enjoyed it. And uh, this week, it's just me, and we're going to go with questions in the category of gender and sexuality. So I'm excited. The next like 90 to 120 minutes are going to be amazing. <laughs> okay, I, I joked. I won't go that long. Don't worry if you're hungry. We'll, we'll get you to lunch eventually. Um, yeah, this is an important topic. It's a weighty topic. And I'm so glad to just get into it with you guys this morning. It's going to be so good. Let's start with um, God's design and purpose as Creator. What a good foundation point. It's actually the start of our Bible. So let's go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. It says, God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So male and female are made in the image of God. That word means it's, we're his likeness. We're like living statues of himself, his own very replicas. Jesus uses this same terminology when people ask him about whether it's good to give taxes to the Roman government. Did you know that? They, they come and say, hey, should we give taxes or not? And Jesus says, well, look at the coin. Whose image is on it? And it's Caesar's image. And then he says, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. So the point is, coins belong to Caesar, but humans belong to God, their creator. God creates male and female from the same bone and flesh, but very different from one another, doesn't he? They're opposite yet corresponding, a perfect complement to one another, a suitable fit for each other according to the wisdom and design of God. That's what we learn in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2.24, it says, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. So the corresponding halves of humanity are designed to leave their own families and be united as one flesh to start a new family. Whenever they're able, they're encouraged to be fruitful and multiply to have children. Malachi 2.15 actually says that God desires godly offspring. And then as we turn to the New Testament, we learn that Jesus agrees. When he talks about marriage in Matthew chapter 19, he quotes two passages, the two we just read from Genesis, about how God created male and female and how the two become one flesh. So we see a consistency across the Old and New Testament about God's design and purpose for us, his design and purpose as our creator. And so this brings us to our first question, uh, which is such a great question. If marriage is God's plan for human sexuality, why are there so many single Christians? Right? And I just built up the whole thing about like two become one flesh. It was all about sort of that marriage context, right? And I sort of did that to set up this question because this one is awesome. And it actually brings up other questions that I think are really important and related. Like, am I settling for less than God's best if I don't marry? Am I missing out if I'm a widow or widower? Those are good questions too. (laughs) So let's take a look. Let's start by looking at Jesus, who was devoted to mission, not an earthly marriage, during his time in ministry on this earth. Now we do read in the Bible about his marriage to come, He's going to return and marry his bride, the church. But uh, in the Gospels, when we read about his life and ministry, he was not married. And yet he was not alone. Singleness does not equal loneliness. And Jesus demonstrates that in John 15.10. He talks about how he abides in the Father's love. and the verse right before it, John 15.9, he invites his disciples to abide in his love in that same way. And in Mark chapter 3, He talks about how those who do the will of God are mother and brother and sister. And so if you do the will of God in Christ, you have a family. You're not alone. Jesus is the model for singleness and what godly singleness looks like. And he demonstrates for us how single people have a place of belonging in the family of God. Okay, but let's look at some other examples too. You might be thinking, well, Jesus has an asterisk, right? That whole, like, God thing. <laughs> Luke chapter 2, we meet Anna. She was married for seven years and then lived until the age of 84 as a widow. And she is so highly valued and honored in the gospel according to Luke as a single person. She devotes herself to the Lord in a special way. She spends a ton of time at church, worshiping, fasting, Praying. And she's one of the first to proclaim the good news about Jesus. He was only eight days old when she met him. <laughs> so she's a terrific example of singleness as well. And we'll do one more, okay? Because I think this is important. Paul writes extensively about singleness and marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He, like Jesus, was devoted to his mission, not a marriage. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we learn that Paul is a father figure to many, although he's single. Uh, we know he's a father figure to Timothy as well as many others. And he encourages believers to remain single, but he's not against marriage. What he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is point out the unique opportunities afforded to people who are single, opportunities like uh, pleasing the Lord in a unique way that married people cannot, um focusing on being holy and body and spirit in a unique way. And an undivided devotion is available to you if you're single that's not available to married people because we have to think about what our spouse um, needs and wants. So you have unique opportunities if you're single, and it's valuable. Jesus actually talks about this a little bit. In Matthew chapter 19, he says, There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone who can accept this do it. (laughs) So Jesus highlights how some people are single for the sake of the kingdom, that they've chosen that for God's kingdom. So marriage is good and singleness is good also. But Bill, which should we choose? Which one is better? Great question. Let's go to a commentary. R.T. France said this, Whether one is married or not is not a matter of better and worse, but of God's gift, which is not the same for all disciples. So in my own words, each of us has to walk and talk with God and determine which way we're called to live. Either way, you belong in the family of God and you're not alone. And either way, you can walk close to the Lord and serve him well. Okay, so that's my like foundational stuff. We did get one question along the way, but this was the foundation we needed to build on. Creator God and his design for us in marriage and in singleness. And now we can kind of proceed to the other questions on gender and sexuality. Sound good? All right. Good, good, good. Okay, our next question is this. How do I get free from pornography? It's a great question. And let's start with some statistics to sort of frame the question and where we're at in our world today. Pie charts. Who loves pie charts? Who loves pie? Who loves charts? Who loves pie charts? Two (laughs) hands. Can I get an amen, brother? (laughs) So a study performed in the year 2020 said that 91.5% of men had consumed pornography within the last month. And 60.2% of women had looked at pornography in the last month. And the statistics are actually much better for committed believers. People who attend church and would say that they are born again, the statistics are better. Um, But even so, pornography is on the rise even among committed Christians. So the point is that it's a serious problem in America today. Um, Not only is it sinful and destructive, but it's readily available. It's incredibly addictive. And on top of that, our culture has really normalized it, hasn't it? The culture really says, no big deal, just go for it. So let's, before we get to the question that was asked, how do I get free? Let's ground ourselves in what the Bible is, specifically what Jesus says about the topic. Then we'll come back to the question. So to Matthew chapter 5 we go. Jesus says this. I just want to point out, although Jesus seems to be talking to men, the same applies to women. Um, and he's really clear that lust is equivalent to sexual immorality. Lust is equivalent to adultery. Um, so that one's pretty clear. Thank you, Jesus. And uh, as we look back to our foundation in Genesis, we can sort of look at how pornography is a contrast to God's original design as well. We can see how porn replaces God's original design with something that's self-centered and twisted. It's a twisted version of sexuality. The creator of the universe says that sex is for the purpose of uniting two as one flesh in the context of marriage. And porn has a whole different message. It says, no thanks, I want it on my own terms. I want sexual stimulation in a fantasy world of my own making. That's really the message underlying porn use. It's very clearly a sin according to the Bible. It's contrary to God's design and purposes. So let's come back around to the question. The question was, how do I get free from pornography? What do I do about it? Thanks for showing me what it said in the Bible, Bill. Maybe some of you were already aware of that. So let's come back to the question. Uh, I've got three things Three steps for approaching getting freedom from pornography. The first is take it seriously. Now, the person who asked this question, I want to acknowledge, like, seems like they already are, right? They're asking the question. I want to get free of it. So that's good. Um, but I think because of the way the culture has normalized pornography, it's important to talk about this for a moment, to take it seriously as Christians. Every time... Any one of us looks at pornography, it is stealing, killing, and destroying our lives. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it specifically lists both the sexually immoral and adulterers as some of those unrighteous characteristics that keep people from the kingdom of God. Jesus said we're guilty of adultery when we lust. So this is serious, Okay. Let's take it seriously. That's an important first step. The second is confess your sins. And especially with pornography, I think it's important to use the James 5.16 model for confession. It says this, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So, gentlemen, confess your sins to a brother in Christ if you're struggling with pornography. Ask them to pray for you and encourage you and offer you accountability. That's a key step in getting free. Ladies, go to a sister in Christ. Ask them to pray for you, encourage you, and give you accountability. When you confess your sins, 1 John nine says, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So by confessing our sins in Jesus, we can become righteous, clean, pure, and holy, and we can have relationship with God. There's a a way that's been made for us through him. So that's step two. One was, take it seriously, two was confess, and three is repent. And I want to highlight two ways of repenting. Change your mind and change your ways, okay? What I mean by change your mind is this. It's important to ask yourself really hard questions and require of yourself deep, thoughtful responses to those questions. Here's some of the questions I'd encourage you to ask yourself. What deeper need am I trying to meet when I use porn? (coughs) Like, you might have to ask yourself that, come up with an answer, ask again, get a deeper answer. You know, it might be iterative to really get down to the root of it. What am I trying to escape from when I use pornography? That's a good question and very important. What belief lies underneath it all? That's what we're getting to maybe the belief is i'm all alone i'm a failure nobody loves me god can't really forgive me if we can find those root ungodly beliefs deep in our heart we can actually replace them with god's truth and we can find freedom so part of repentance is changing your mind which takes some reflection and some work the other way is the other part of repentance is change your ways So this is where we get practical. If your smartphone is a gateway to sin, get rid of your smartphone. What? (laughs) Yeah, I'm serious. Remember that part where Jesus said, tear out your eye and throw it away? Cut off your hand and throw it away? The modern version of that is, get rid of your smartphone and buy a flip phone. I'm serious. And if we take it seriously, that can be a real path forward to freedom because it's less Readily available. If you're addicted to pornography, get help. Use all the resources available to fight that addiction. And there are many resources available. And then no matter what sort of uh, depth of struggle you're in with this, get up every day and fight tooth and nail for your freedom. Just keep on fighting, you know, and to go from a really bad situation, something like this, to total freedom is a long journey. And the little chart, as I like to think of charts, (laughs) has its ups and downs along the way. So when you're on and up, don't get too excited because there's often a down coming in the journey. If you're down, don't sink into despair, but look across the trajectory. Right? The whole, how far have I come since when I started? You know. And if you've come a long way, keep on coming, baby, so you find totally freedom. And it's possible. It's possible. I've walked that journey, and you can too. All right. Let's move on to our next question. That was a good one, wasn't it? So is the next one. If being gay is a sin, why doesn't God fix it when someone gets saved? Thank you for this question. It's a terrific question. And this one needs to be talked about in parts. There's a couple parts to this, and you're probably seeing them even as I read it to you, right? So let's start with the why doesn't God fix it part, okay? Last week, we had a question along the same lines. It was a really good question about, um, uh, what was it? Like addiction or sin. Um, And we looked at Exodus 23. And so any situation where we go, God, why aren't you making this go away? Why aren't you changing this circumstance right away? Exodus 23 is a good template for us. And um, the sum of what we said last week is that God often chooses to give us fullness and freedom through a process of becoming. You're becoming a certain kind of person, and that's a process. And often, fullness and freedom comes through the process of becoming. So, I put this together with some alliteration. Another way, another way to say it: our job is to partner with God in the process of becoming a person with the capacity to possess His promises. Right? Isn't that cool? All those p's. Partner with God in the process of becoming a person with the capacity to possess his promises. He sometimes grants a miraculous, instantaneous freedom. And so like we said last week, let's pray for that in every situation and in every circumstance. We can ask him for the miraculous. He's a miracle worker. And sometimes that's the way he works. But let's do that full of faith, And also submitted to his will, ready to accept his sovereign decision in every matter. That's a good, balanced way to approach this sort of thing. He might free you in an instant from whatever situation it is you're thinking about, or he might walk with you on a journey to freedom. It applies to the previous question about pornography too, doesn't it? Okay, so back to this question. The other part of it is: it says, is being gay a sin? So the Bible has plenty to say on the matter, and we're going to get there, but let's start with terminology, all right? I feel like this subject, often people are talking past each other because they don't use words in the same way. And so let's sort of align on that. The word gay means attraction to the same sex. The word straight means attraction to the opposite sex. These words on their own are about who you're attracted to it does not automatically imply that you're having sex with anyone. Did you know that? Now you do. So if being attracted to someone is a sin, then gay and straight people are living in constant sin. But that's not the case. Attraction is only a desire. And the Bible distinguishes between desire and sin. Let's read where that's at. James chapter 1. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Did you catch that? This is really important. Desire does not equal sin. I put it in my little programmy way of doing things. If you've been around, you know what I'm talking yes. about. Desire does not equal sin, but temptation comes from our desires. And only if that desire conceives will it give birth to sin, right? So our desires exist, sort of just are. They exist. They are there. It's, no, it's not helpful to deny that. Sometimes these desires entice us to sin, but it takes our free will choice in combination with the temptation to conceive sin. So desire plus choice equals sin. However, if we remain steadfast under trial, testing, and temptation, there is no conception and there is no sin. Or in my little programming language there, desire plus steadfast equals no sin. After all, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, wasn't he? And yet he was without sin. So guys, let's be really, really careful about labeling other people as sinners based on only their desires. That would be a mistake. And we could turn that finger right around if we're going to be consistent about doing so. And it's just not helpful. So being gay means being attracted to people of the same sex, right? An attraction is a desire, not a sin. Having sexual relations with someone of the same sex is a free will choice to act on a desire. And that's another matter entirely that makes sense? Desire is not sin. Acting on um, having sex with someone of the same sex is acting on that desire. Let's see what the Bible says about it. Leviticus 20.13. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. First Corinthians 6.9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Remember we talked about that with pornography. Do not be deceived. Neither. Neither. <laughs> Is that a Minecraft reference? <laughs> uh, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, greedy, drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So there's the list that does include same-sex sexual relations. Romans 1, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So the Old and New Testament agree and are consistent that sexual relations with someone of the same biological sex is sin, as is all sexual immorality, even the straight kind. (laughs) So it's not that groundbreaking to say so, is it? (laughs) All all sexual immorality is sin, according to the Bible. Um, And as the last passage says, same-sex relations are contrary to the nature of God's design for humans. Right? He created us male and female as corresponding halves of humankind. So let me sum it up like this. If we are not pursuing a singleness devoted to the Lord... His plan for us is to marry someone of the opposite sex, become one flesh, and if, we're, if possible, if we're able, have children that we raise to be godly. That's what the Bible says. So let's read it again. <laughs> if we are not pursuing a singleness devoted to the Lord, then his plan for us is to marry someone of the opposite sex, become one flesh, and if possible, have children that we raise to be godly. The word of God. What do we do with it? That's the question we all want answered, right? What do we do with it? Here's my two step plan to interpreting the scripture and applying it faithfully love God and love neighbor. It's Matthew 22. That's what Jesus said is the great commandment and the second which is like it love God and love neighbor. So here's what I mean by that. Believe that God is the creator, that he is good. Foster a deep desire to love him and his design for the world and for you. Make it your desire to embrace his design, his way, his role as king and lord. Don't try to sit on the throne. That's what Adam and Eve did. Don't eat of the fruit. Of the knowledge of good and evil, which wants to say I can define good and evil on my own terms, but instead accept his terms as creator. Accept his lordship. Accept his way. His way is good. I believe that with all my heart. His way is good. It is full, abundant, eternal life for you and for me. That's the primary way that we love God is by embracing that. And then another element of loving God for Christians is standing up for the truth in spite of pressure from other places. So when two things are in conflict, we choose to love the Lord above everything else. If what God says and what our culture says are in conflict, we choose God as Christians. If what God says and what our friends, our peers, our social networks are saying are in conflict, we choose what God says because we love him first and foremost. We value what he values over and above what anyone else thinks. And then the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. This means when you speak the truth, you speak it in love. That's Ephesians 4.15. Ladies and gentlemen, gay people are not an argument to win. They are image bearers that Jesus loves and died for. And we should love them too. It's true for every type of person. That's why we started in Genesis. Every single living human being you encounter is a little replica, a living statue of God. And so don't dishonor God by dishonoring someone as a human being. Romans 2, verse 4 tells us that the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. So be the kindness of God, Christians. Build relationships with people, with love and kindness that builds bridges for them to come to know Jesus and his love and design for their life. Remember that if someone says they are gay, you should not assume they are sinning. Gay describes a desire and part of uh there's a couple ways that we fail to love our neighbor well one is a failure to listen failing to listen is a failure to love because kindness and love will listen to what someone else has to say where they're at what they're experiencing how they feel and it gives space for someone to be open and honest don't you want that i do <laughs> so let's provide it for others by loving our neighbor well. Clarity is kindness also. Failing to be clear about your own beliefs and what the Bible says is also a failure to love well. If you really love someone and you have a relationship with them that allows it, you'll speak the truth to them in love. You won't hold back, even if it's hard. I struggle with that one sometimes, you know, because I'm maybe tender-hearted or whatever. I don't want to hurt somebody. But sometimes the truth is hard. It's a tough pill to swallow. I don't want the truth withheld from me. I want the opportunity to respond to it. And so loving well is also being clear and kind. So guys, don't let culture's polarization prevent you from loving God and loving neighbor. Our culture says that... You're going to compromise and be permissive and not hold the biblical truth. Or you're going to be a hateful bigot. And culture says there's nothing in the middle. And I'd say, forget that whole thing. Forget the middle, forget the ends. Love God and love neighbor. It's a whole different thing. And it's the truth. You don't have to be permissive or a bigot or whatever the ways you hear the world labeling this issue, and you're going to be this or you're going to be that. No, you don't. You don't have to be either one. I give you permission to be neither. (laughs) Instead, you can love God and love neighbor. And you can be like Jesus, who was full of grace and truth. That's John chapter 1. Jesus never compromised the truth, did he? In fact, he raised the bar for morality very, very high. Read Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. But he was full of grace at the same time. And notorious sinners loved him for it. They were drawn to him, and the result was that they came into relationship and alignment with his way of life. That's the target we're shooting for. That's the target we're shooting for, to be full of grace and truth the kind of person that notorious sinners love and are drawn to. And when they're drawn into relationship with you, they become like Jesus and they enter into his kingdom. That sounds pretty good. All right, next question. Explain trans people. Did God make them that way? If he did, why is it wrong? These are terrific questions. Um, a lot of what we covered already is going to apply to this topic as well. And again, I think the most helpful place to start is talking about terminology so that we're on the same page. A trans person is someone who feels incongruence between their biological sex and their gender identity. All right? The body and the sense of self are not in alignment for someone who would say, I'm trans. And it's an umbrella term that's out there. There may be a more current umbrella term that I'm not aware of. I apologize if I've got the wrong one there. But um, the idea is that there are a lot of people who feel that incongruence. You know, maybe someone who has a male body but feels more like a woman, or the flip of that, or individuals who identify as non-binary, sort of all in this category. And and I want to address um, all of that the best we can this morning. Like the word gay, it's really important not to preload assumptions, okay? It does not automatically mean a whole slew of things if someone says they're trans. It doesn't mean they have changed the way they dress or they're using puberty blockers or are undergoing hormone therapy or have had a surgery. That would be preloading assumptions. Um, We don't want to do that. Instead, we want to listen. Kindness listens well, and that's part of loving our neighbor. We want to make space, if someone tells you they're trans, to tell you their story honestly and openly, how they feel. That's part of loving your neighbor well. Okay, so that's terminology. The first part of the question that we'll get to is, is it wrong? So like attraction to the same sex, feeling more like a woman than a man, feeling more like a man than a woman, or feeling like neither is not a sinful act in and of itself, But it operates on that same level of desire. Desire is not sin, as we saw. But what we do with that desire determines whether we sin. So here's how I think about it, guys. It's wrong for us to take the place of God. It's wrong for us to define good and evil on our own terms. Rather than accepting what God says is good and bad. So, to be a faithful follower of Jesus, we have to accept that He creates us male and female in His image. If we feel incongruence with our body as Christians, we are called to choose to agree with God, not our feelings and desires, no matter how strong those desires may be. The same is true for all desires that tempt us to leave God's created order for our lives as laid out in the Bible. So again, consistency. We're applying that across the board for all desires. If you're a Christian, and you have a desire that's leading you away from God's design for your life, it's your responsibility to resist that desire, remain steadfast, and do not act on it. So let's get to another part of the question. Did God make people trans? So, Again, from James chapter 1, God does not tempt anyone. That's really clear in James 1. And I think to create someone that way and then ask them not to act on it would be a temptation. Um, So I do not think that God creates people, uh, doesn't make people trans. But you might be thinking of the follow-up questions I thought of for myself. Well, if it's not God, could it be something else? Where someone's born a certain way, because it applies to more than just trans, um, For some other reason, like the fallen world, original sin, maybe there are other reasons I haven't thought of. And so my answer to this one is this: I don't know. And the scientific research on the subject is inconclusive, at least the one the research that I've seen and I'm privy to. Um, It's a nature and nurture question, and science isn't sure, at least not responsible science that I'm aware of. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of People making claims on both sides of that one. Um, But in terms of living the Christian life, you guys, it is not necessary to have an answer to that question. We don't have to have an answer to that question. I'm really comfortable saying, I don't know. (laughs) Here's why. God's standard does not change even if we have inborn desires, tendencies, or genetic predispositions Toward what he says is sinful. Have you heard that before? (laughs) God's desire does not change. It's desire. God's standard does not change even if we have inborn desires, tendencies, or genetic predispositions toward what he says is sinful. His standard remains the same. So even if you are born a certain way, and have to carry desires that would lead you to sin for your whole life, if you're a Christian, I believe you're called to resist that desire and live according to God's standard in the Bible. Does that sound like a big ask? (laughs) It is a big ask. But you're not alone. If you are in that situation, whether about gender identity, sexual attraction, or anything else, where you feel that your core desires are contrary to what we just saw in Scripture, you're not alone in having to resist those desires. Jesus calls us all to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. That looks different from person to person. And not everyone's road is as easy as the next person. Some roads are very difficult. But the call is the same. We're called to lose our life to find it, to submit to his lordship, his kingly reign over us, and give up our own right to rule our lives. We give back our perceived right to define good and bad on our own terms and accept his definition instead because he's creator, he's God. That's what it means to be a Christian, you guys, (laughs) no matter if your desires are gay, straight, trans, or anything else. To be a Christian means to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. He did not promise that it would be easy. And I'm not going to make that promise today either. But there's another aspect to that. The trade we make is ridiculously lopsided. We give up ruling our own life, but we gain eternal, abundant blissful joy in his presence. It's like emptying our bank account to buy a pearl that's worth billions of dollars. With that in mind, it's actually a really small ask in light of eternity, whatever the ask is for you. And if you can see that truth, it'll help you to walk it out. We are never asked to walk the hard, narrow road alone. God said he will never leave you nor forsake you. And his plan for you is to live in his family, surrounded by people who can support you, encourage you, and walk with you through life. You have brothers, sisters, mothers, and fathers in this church if you're a Christian. Okay. Again, if this is the truth, what do we do with it is the next question. So what do we do when someone asks us to call them by a new name? What do we do when someone asks us to use pronouns that don't match their biological sex? I'm going to start by repeating something I said earlier. Love God and love neighbor. Dramatic pause for a drink like, is he going to dodge this one? (laughs) We'll see, right? Okay, so love God by aligning yourself with his word and his way, you guys. That means speaking the truth that he created us male and female. His design for our lives is to identify with our natural biological sex. Love your neighbor by building relationships with trans people. In the context of this question, with all people, listen to what they have to say, how they feel, you don't have to agree with someone's theology or their interpretation of Scripture to love them. No. No. What is that true? <laughs> I didn't read that on social media. <laughs> you don't have to agree with someone to love them, be their friend. Come on. All right, but I will answer the question: Where do you draw the lines? All right, pronouns are not. New names are not. What do we do as Christians? I want you to prayerfully decide for yourself. Read the scripture. Listen to what I'm going to say about how I approach it and then make a thoughtful decision. Talk to someone about it, especially someone who doesn't agree with you. and Work it out. Here's my path for loving God and neighbor. This is what I'm doing. Um, Let's, we'll take an example. But first, um, so I'm not comfortable calling somebody by a name that's clearly contradictory to their biological sex. So make an example. Say someone I'm friends with Her name is Kathy. She says, hey, will you call me Kat? Sure. Why not? I'm happy to call you Kat. But if she asks me to call her Kevin, then I'm going to have more conversation with Kathy and say, hey, you know, here's what I believe. We're friends. I love you. I want to keep being friends with you. Um, But here's why I'm not comfortable with that. What can we work out? Let the conversation continue. Um, I want to love her, I want to be kind to her, um, but I can't violate my own beliefs. I'm going to love God and I'm going to love her at the same time. And um, I actually believe that it is loving for me um, to not call this person by a name that rejects their biological sex. I believe it's loving to lead that person toward God's design for their life. So the same goes for pronouns. I feel it would be unloving to God for me to call somebody by a pronoun that doesn't match the way he created them, their, their body, their sex. Um, and it's, again, most loving for me to invite them back to God's design toward the body that he created them in. Now, um, as I do those things, I'm not going to shove it in anyone's face. I don't think that honors God and it doesn't honor them as someone made in God's image, right? There's a term dead naming, like where you kind of like use the person's uh, given name to poke at them. Um, so that's not loving, you know. Using the pronouns to poke or without having conversation just isn't loving. We just got to get over our fear of difficult conversations and have them, because that is loving. <laughs> um. Again, there's a way forward in our day and age outside of culture's polarized view of things. That you've got to do this or that. Um, we can love God and love neighbor, and it's a whole different ballgame. Not every conversation is a debate to win or an argument. Most conversations are opportunity to show kindness, to share the love of God, hopefully share the good news that Jesus died for all of us, and that he invites us all into eternal life through him. Okay, so I want to end with a story from a book. It's a man named Alan's story from the book Embodied by Preston Sprinkle. Um, I'm going to read it to you. Ever since he could remember, Alan had an unchosen desire to dress, act, and behave like a woman. He had no one to talk to, no one to guide him, and seeing the church's attitude toward trans people made him feel even more isolated and ashamed. He also grew tired of the hypocrisy in the church. Alan said, I had become upset at the hypocrisy of Christians, saying they were full of grace, but not putting it into practice. One day, a Christian friend asked to hear Alan's story. So Alan told him everything, his desire to be a woman, his sexual attraction to men, the whole story. And Alan expected to be condemned. To his surprise, he was loved. Alan said this, instead of the shaming and condemnation I expected, I was told that despite my past and present desires, God didn't hate me. And I was lovable by others and by God. These simple words pierced his soul, and Alan gave his life to Christ, all because he had the courage to share his story with a friend who received him graciously. Then Alan said, If I never learned about pure, undistilled grace, I would have transitioned to a female and left the church. The thing that brought me to an acceptance of my biblical masculinity was a man who gave me the space to speak about my desires openly And let me know that he and God loved me nevertheless. It was love, not logic, that changed Alan's heart. So I share that story for two reasons. Um, There are plenty of Alans, you know, who are just waiting for someone to love God and love neighbor enough to be their friend, meet them where they're at, um, love them well, listen well, share the truth, in love, and then I love the friend, right? Because that's where I'm at. I'm in the friend seat in that story. And so it's an encouragement to me, and hopefully it's an encouragement to you, to be a good friend, to listen well, to love your neighbor well, and love God well too. It takes grace and truth, courage and humility, patience and boldness to love God and love our neighbor well. That's the target. That's what we're aiming for. I'm excited. I feel like we're starting a journey together, New Day. After today, really opening this topic and taking it head-on is the beginning of a journey for us as a church, and I'm excited to walk it with you. It's been a pleasure sharing the Word with you this morning.
1: Wow, you did such a great job, Bill. Just on behalf of all of us, thank you. Yeah, so let's just respond. Let's stand and we'll pray together. Yeah. There was so much there, but let's just take a few moments and, um, and uh, prayerfully align our hearts with, with the truth that was shared this morning. Oh, So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grounding truth in a culture that does tell us we need to be polarized and we need to be um, angry. You, you show us a new way, and Bill really modeled that for us this morning. And so I just pray that you would just do a work in each heart. Each heart um, needs to be transformed by this message. And so we just come into alignment with the truth of your word that we give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And we're yours. We're God's. We're image bearers of you. And we just confess if we've tried to define good and evil on our own terms, we're sorry. Just repent today if you feel that that's you. God, we accept your terms and your lordship in your way. Your way is good, abundant, and full of life and eternal life. Help us to love you first and foremost. The second commandment is like it. Love our neighbor as ourself. But love our neighbor as ourself is not the first commandment. Loving you most and so We uncompromisingly put you first, but help us to love our neighbors well, like you did, Jesus. And that we all would take up our cross and follow you. That you've called us all to lose our life, but in you we find it. And we realize that even though that seems like a big ask, it's so small in light of what you gave up and in light of what we gain. So thank you, God. Let let these truths and the scriptures shared today settle in and become ingrained in who we are at our core. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, wow.